you're a guest here, I want to welcome you to Olive Branch. My name is Greg Harris. I'm the senior pastor here, and uh, we're glad that you're joining with us. We're actually going to start in a series this morning so that uh, you guys are kind of in at the bottom row. I know some of you guys are here because you were invited by neighbors or friends, and, and you thought, hey, why not? I haven't been churched in a while. Check it out. Let's see what this is like. Uh, others of you are here because you, you, saw, you saw some stuff around town, or you're just like, hey, we need to get to church. Some of you I know are here under duress. You've been forced to be here, and uh, you're making your mother happy. Thank you. And, uh, but I mean, obviously somebody may have been like really pushy and like, Hey, you gotta come. You gotta come. You're just like, I'm gonna get this person off my back. I'm sure. Okay, fine. I'll show up one time. And we're just glad you're here anyway. Um, I was one of those pushy people once probably still am. I can remember back in the day I was the, I was that guy when I first became a Christian who was constantly turning every single conversation, regardless of what it was towards Jesus. Like, Hey, and, and what about that? And Noah's Ark is that. And, you know, and my, my, my friends who weren't used to me doing that, cause I was, I was a senior in high school. We were just hanging out. We were at a coffee shop in the middle of the weekend where we always hung out. He just looked at me. He's like, dude, like, how do you even know any of that stuff is true? You ever asked that question? Ever been asked that question? And some of us have looked that question in the face and you probably did what I did. I went, eh, I don't know. So, and, and it kind of put some angst in me. So I, I turned to the resident expert in my life in Christianity and I went, mom, what is it that I, that when, how do I answer this question? She looked at me and she said, well, you just have faith. I just have faith. You know, I don't know. I just have faith. And I thought, I, I can't give that answer to my friend. He's not going to be satisfied with that answer. What do I do with this? And so I'd been taking some, some stuff at the church and learning some things. And slowly in time, I, I sort of came to the answers. But I began to realize that that answer, I just have faith, is pretty much the answer a lot of people give. How many of you ever received that answer when you've asked a question? Throw your hand up real quick. Let me see. I just have faith. How many of you guys have given that answer? If, you, if you've ever given that answer, that's fine. You know, I know what we mean is typically we're saying, hey, I, I just trust God. This is what he said. I'm going to go with him on this one. And um, I get that's what my mom meant too. For me, I'm more of a little bit of a skeptic. I'm a little bit of a philosophy guy. I'm not I'm just like, I got to have an answer for my friend here. He's, he's scientifically minded. And, and so I was wrestling through this stuff, especially when it came to the word faith, because a lot of us think faith means a blind leap into a dark chasm. The idea of a, a just a, a random attempt at believing something that nobody can prove. You know, it's just, yeah, you got good feelings. And so you hold to it. Sentimentality. And really that's what we think faith is. I believe it because I want it to be true kind of understanding. But what's strange is that the Bible doesn't teach that concept of faith at all. In fact, when you begin to dive into the Bible, you begin to realize the Bible actually speaks about faith as, it be, as having a beginning, not with simply just having emotions and not with empty ideas that can't be proven, but it actually begins with evidence. There's a sense that faith and evidence are connected. Faith and reasons are linked. In fact, we see that here that, that we, we have is that faith begins when you're convicted about something, when you're convinced about it. In Hebrews verse chapter 11, it's a, a book in the Bible, a letter that was written. He defines faith for us. The author says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. People go, that takes a little while to wrap your head around. Think of it like an equation. Faith equals something. Faith is something. And it says this. It says faith is equal to faith is 
the surety, assurance. We are sure of things that we hope for. Now, hope in the Bible is also different. We, we have kind of wish fulfillment. I hope I get that for Christmas, you know, that kind of hope. For, for, the, um, for the Bible, hope is like when you've ordered something and you, you're expecting it to come, you, your hopeful expectation. And that's the idea of hope for this. So he's saying, we're sure of what, we're, what we've been promised. We're sure of God's promises. We're sure of what he's told us. And we're convicted that he exists. We're convicted that the, that the unseen exists. And that word convicted is not like, I'm convicted about it. It's just what I believe it. No, the word can be retranslated convinced. Convinced, meaning that there's been something about our belief that is standing on something. It actually, we trust something. We trust someone. If you have children and they've just become teenagers, you know what it feels like to try to trust someone that you're not so sure you can trust all the time, right? You send them out the door and you hope they're going to go do what you told them to. And after a while they come home, they've done the things you've told them to. You are convicted. You're convinced. You have faith. We trust all kinds of stuff. We have faith in all kinds of things we can't see. We, we do it all the time as Americans. Give you an example. Amazon.com. Anybody ever seen Amazon.com? I mean, it's probably one person. Have you ever seen it? I mean, you know, oh, I've seen the web, not the website. I'm not talking about the effects of Amazon.com. You don't know what's behind the website. You, you've been the CEO, you know, met him, shook his hand. You've been on, in the corporate tower. You've walked around in, in the middle of their warehouses. You've seen it. Because we trust, we trust an awful lot. We go online and we go, hey, I want that thing. Here's my money, Amazon.com. What if I told you I have a website called Greg.com, send your money to me, and I will get you what you need? <laughs> right there, just because I have a pretty website doesn't mean that you trust me. Way back when these kind of things were coming out, there was a sense of like, can I trust this? Is this really going to happen? And we built over time an evidence of a culture that we trust things we don't even see. They tell us little helicopters are going to drop stuff off at our door. And we go, cool, we really trust them that much. But it's just proof that right now in our ID theft world, if somebody pointed you to a new website and said, this is a great website and this stuff, and look at this and give them your money and they do these things, you'd be like, I've never seen them before. I don't, you need to have evidence. I think that's where a lot of us are with God. I believe that he's given us plenty of evidence. I believe it's in our face all the time. I mean, what we have to do is we have to trust. And so some of this is that Christians don't just believe, hey, I believe it. Ah, we actually have something we stand on. We have a conviction about things that we haven't seen. We have a conviction about God. And what we want to do in this series is we want to talk about that, those evidences. We kind of want to lay those down a little bit so that we're not just like, I believe I can fly, whatever. You know, it's like we want to be able to make sure that we have something we're standing on. Up behind me is kind of a certainty um, line. And you can't have 100% of anything. I just want to let, kind of let that air out of the out of the bag. There, there's no 100%. You can't have 100% you've been sitting in this room the whole day. Because you could have been created this very second with all your memories of your past. Philosophers love playing skepticism. So there's not 100% that you can ever have on anything. All we want to do is move you one step in certainty, one step in certainty, and one step in certainty. I get it. Some of you here today, you are all the way over here on maybe somewhat doubtful. Maybe a few of you are on very doubtful. You're like, this is ridiculous. I'm here because it's Easter and I do it every year. Others of you, you may be right here in the middle. You're uncertain. You're just kind of like, I'm kind of close. I, I guess, maybe. I, and some of you Christians, you're certain, but you're just not very certain. Somebody who's asked you one question and it would rock you. 
For me, I'm on the very certain side of this scale. I, I am very certain that Christianity is true. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. And I'm very certain because of the evidences. And what I want to do in this series is share a lot of those or some of those evidences and give you ideas and point you in directions where you can begin to explore it on your own. And it starts on this. On this day, what we celebrate is Easter. And Easter is one of the strongest things for the conversation about Christianity. And the reason I say that is because of a verse in the Bible that's in this book called 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians is a letter written by a man named Paul who used to plant churches in the first century. And he moved into a city called Corinth and he, deliv- and he set up a church there and he wrote this letter to them. They're wrestling over whether people are raised from the dead. And he says this, that about if they're not raised from the dead, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. He says, we're going to be in trouble with God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? Say it out loud. You need to say it because you want to realize what it's saying. You're still in your sins. If Christ isn't raised, all this singing, all this stuff that we're doing is idiocy. Complete and utter foolishness. That's what he says. It's futile, pointless. Why do it? You're just blaspheming God every time you get together. That's how serious the resurrection is. It's how serious Easter is. That's why it's placed there. This is the only book of a religious expression that ever tells you how you can disprove it. And so we're going to dive into this because I believe in here is the beginning of where you can begin to have faith that God truly has done something amazing, that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to bear our sins so that we wouldn't have to pay it off, that he would literally cover it with a sacrifice. It would bind our relationship with God so we could know him and then we could follow after him the rest of our lives all the way into heaven. That would be an awesome story, wouldn't it? If, just, just, just take out the truth stuff. That, wouldn't that be a sweet, nice story if it were true? I mean, it sounds too good to be true. God's just going to forgive sin, all the messes that we did, all the bad things we've ever done. He's just going to wipe it clean, give you a chance to know him, and give you a purpose in life, and send you to heaven. All for free as a gift. That sounds way too good to be true, if it is just sentimentality. But if it, something proves, shows it, gives you more certainty, it's something maybe we can trust. And that's what we're going to do. And so I'm going to start with this conversation about this resurrection, this Easter Sunday. So when we say he is risen, he is risen indeed, it actually means something more than sentimentality. Now I could present to you hundreds of evidences and then you would all go home overwhelmed, exhausted and saying, I'm never coming back to that place again. They're crazy. And so also there's a problem with this. Say I present to you one particular piece of evidence and I stand here and I say, my scholars all tell you this is true. You're going to go home. It's Easter. You're going to turn on the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, whatever. And you're going to see all these scholars going, oh, my scholars say that that is false. There's a fight going on between scholarship. Yes, it's true. We love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? Sure, but you're not right. You know, that's kind of how the scholarship works out. And so what do we do with this? All this back and forth. I'm not going to put you through that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you four minimal evidences, four minimal facts. What I mean by that is they are facts that both sides agree on. Of course, there are extreme positions on both sides where you got somebody who's going like, Jesus doesn't even exist. If you want those, you want to see how that's refuted, some uh, information in the hallway you can check out on the website. And we've got some articles that have been written there. And go ahead and join us. But 
Here, we're going to present you the facts, the four minimal facts that both sides agree on that have plenty of historical attestation. And we're going to look at what the potential story is that actually puts this together. So let's start with this. The first evidence is, pretty, is really, really obvious in, in history. And that is that Jesus died on the cross. That Jesus died on the cross. This is the first piece of evidence. And really, I, I, don't, I feel like I shouldn't have to do this, but, but it, it is one of those pieces that everybody agrees on. In the book of John, which is interesting, John chapter 19, starting verse 30, it's talking about when Jesus is on the cross and he's speaking these certain things. He, he receives the sour wine. He says it is finished and he bows his head and gave up his spirit. Now the Jews want to take the people off the cross because, as what it's saying, because this is a Sabbath day. It's a high, holy, religious holiday for them. And so the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came, broke the legs of the first, which is just a brutal thought. So they can't breathe. They would die more quickly. And of the other who had been crucified with them. So two of the men who are on the right and left of Jesus, and they come to Jesus finally. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. You think he would just end it there. See, dead, pierced, done. But he goes on to say, and at once there came out blood and water. Kind of like an afterthought. This is what I saw. Blood and water spilled out. He who saw it bore witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth that you may also believe. What's interesting is people who do autopsies in the current 21st century, the forensic, the forensic specialists, they look at this and they go, that's correct. When somebody dies, their pericardium fills with water. And um, J. Warner Wallace, a, de- a detective in L.A., talks about this evidence that he's seen over and over again in forensic cases where they're like, yes, this person is dead. Blood and water would spill out if that was pierced. Nor you would expect just blood to pour out or you would expect something like that. But this small little detail indicates that the author was saying, well, this is what happened. And we see, no, he was truly dead. And we have this reality then that he has died. In fact, there's over five non-Christian historians that attest to the same thing, that Jesus died on a cross. And this is usually why both sides agree. The, non, the, non, the secular historians say it, as well as the Christian historians, as well as the evidence given in the eyewitness testimonies called the Gospels. And so Josephus, who was a historian in the first century, he was a Jewish historian. He had been in a battle and he lost, captured by the Romans. And so he said, okay, don't kill me. I'll write a history about Israel for you. And in his history, he wrote this, talking about Jesus. When Pilate, upon hearing him, accused, accused by men of, high, of the highest standing amongst us, had condemned him to be crucified. It goes on to talk about his disciples after that. We don't need to know what he was saying as much as we just realized that he knew that this man had been, had been crucified. There are multiple other people who attest the same thing, that Jesus had been a, been a known person who died by crucifixion under the hand of Pilate. And so we can just pretty much say, yes, that's a pretty easy piece of evidence. Jesus died on the cross. And here's what I think is funny when I read that first. I'm like, that doesn't say Jesus rose from the dead. It said he died on the cross. What's the point in bringing this up? We'll see how it begins to fit together in a minute, though. Because the second piece of evidence is important. The next one is, uh, is slightly more debated, but it is still, in general, agreed upon that the tomb was empty. That on that, on that Easter morning... The tomb was empty. Not saying how it got empty. They're just saying the fact is that the tomb was empty. Well, where do we get this idea from? Well, it starts here. Look at this verse in Matthew 28. 
Matthew is another eyewitness who writes down his eyewitness testimony later, and, and, he, and he writes this. While they were going, speaking of the disciples, behold, some of the guard, now this guard had been standing before Jesus' tomb, keeping people out, because the, the leadership wanted them there to keep the disciples away. And he said, told the chief priests all that had taken place. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said to them this, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. In fact, we can find um, something written. It's a retelling of the story of Jesus written 300 AD by the Jewish people. It's held in one of their, one of their kind of commentary books. And it speaks of the fact that Jesus died on the cross and that the disciples came and stole the body. Now, I'm not arguing whether the disciples came and stole the body right now. That's not my point. My point is there's one group of people who didn't want everybody to think that Jesus had risen from the dead, and that was the leadership who had crucified him. And here what they're saying is, well, just go tell them the disciples stole the body. In other words, the tomb is empty. We need to have an explanation of where the body went. If the tomb wasn't empty, they would have just said, go get the body and let's end this thing. But the tomb didn't have a body in it, so they had the explanation. Regardless of what the explanation is, the people who would be against the thought actually said it's empty. A second interesting piece of evidence is this idea. Imagine with me that we're we're conspirators together today on Easter, and we're all going to tell everybody that our favorite person has risen from the dead here in Corona. They were buried on Rimpaw in the the cemetery over there, and we're all going to be like, okay, we're going to have this grave and everything. Well, you wouldn't do it in town, right? We would go, we would go out of town. Let's go to Oregon. We'll say it up there. Because we wouldn't want somebody to go along and find the grave that the person was buried and dig it up and say, see, they're still there. They're, they're not alive. You want to start your rumor. You want to start your religion where nobody can prove you wrong. The problem with that is Christianity began in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital city of Israel at the time. It was the place where Jesus was crucified and buried. The tomb was known and the crucifixion was in a public place called Golgotha where we know where it is today. And this was a well-known execution. And so what happens is suddenly these disciples are appearing, shouting that Jesus is resurrected, telling the entire temple area, hey, this guy's alive, this guy's alive. And the Jewish leadership is going, this isn't good. Well, if the tomb had been filled with a body, you would go get it, bring it into the, bring it before the temple, you wouldn't bring it inside. You'd set it down in front and say, there he is. Hey, we'll, t- we'll, we'll set up tours. I'll show you where the tomb is. Let's go look. But the point is the tomb was empty. There was no ability to grab a body and show it. And it wouldn't have started in Jerusalem. You wouldn't do it there. You would do it somewhere else. Second, or last one, thirdly, is interesting. How do I put this without offending people? I guess I just have to say it. Um, the first century was bigoted towards women, just, just to let you know. They were sexist. In fact, ladies, if you had been there, um, you were not allowed to testify in court. You would have been thought of as emotional, over-exaggerated, and prone to legend. And so women's testimony was not allowed in a courtroom. What's odd is when you read the story that the eyewitnesses write down, and you can read it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you will come to the realization that every single time somebody announces that the tomb is empty, it's a woman. 
It's Mary Magdalene. It's one of the other women coming going, the tomb is empty. What's really interesting as a side note is that when you read the disciples um, listening to them, they go, you're crazy. They're not going to listen to him. They're that bigoted as well at that point. Why then would you write it down? If you're trying to start a religion, you're trying to start something. So, you, so for whatever reason you have, why would you write down that women did it first? You wouldn't do that. You'd say, oh, well, the apostle Peter went there and, and it was amazing because God showed up and touched him with a power. And, you know, you, you do something to get people excited and credible. You wouldn't discredit yourself by writing in that women were the first ones to see it because everybody who read that would have been like going, why are you listening to them? Obviously, this is false unless it really happened that way. And they recorded what really went on. It is those three lines plus a few others that ultimately lead both sides to say, yeah, the tomb was empty. How it got empty? We can debate that, but it was empty. So Jesus really did die on the cross. The tomb was really empty. So what, what can we add? What's the third minimal evidence? Well, the third minimal evidence is actually this. That the disciples actually believed that they met with Jesus alive again. That they actually saw him alive after he had died. Now note, I didn't say that the scholars on both sides agree that, they, that it happened. But they all agree that they believed it. They believe they saw something. There's not a scholar out there that doesn't believe that they saw something. They'll have different explanations to what they saw or how they saw it. But they all agree that they believe they saw Jesus alive. That's kind of interesting, especially as we kind of look at some of the evidence that kind of supports this, this thought. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, again, beginning in verse 15, we have this. This is at the beginning of that chapter I was reading to you earlier where he says, if this isn't true, you can go home and forget about it. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also what? Received. When you receive something, you didn't make it. It's given to you. It's handed over to you. And what was handed to him is this. And you're going to notice a lot of that's as we read. And I'll tell you why in a second. He says, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, which is a strange... It's strange to use the Aramaic name for Peter there. And then to the 12. What they believe is the that, 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 that. Scholars on all sides say this is an early Christian creed. It was originally an oral tradition that every young Christian would memorize when they became a Christian. They would memorize this idea that Christ died for our sins, that the scripture, according to scriptures, he's buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas. This is what they would memorize. And so Paul delivers this as this is what I was taught. This is what I'm teaching you. And so let's, let's take a look at this timeline. I want to point to you how early this is. So go ahead and go forward for me on the slides. Up here behind me is this timeline. And you'll note that 30 AD right here is when Jesus died on the cross. Now, some will debate 33, but most, most will just take the 31 for right now because it's the earlier position and it creates the largest gap. When you have Paul writing 1 Corinthians in AD 53, which is what we were reading from, he's quoting this thing that was given to him. Now, he was converted in 34 AD, four years after the crucifixion. Likely, given it a year later when he visited in Jerusalem, and then he quotes it later, but he has this creed given to him. Most scholars believe it's between 31 and 33 that this creed is solidified. That is the earliest portion of the New Testament you can find. Too early for a legend to rise up. Still early enough to check things out. And, and interestingly enough, 
early enough that it had to be from the apostles' own lips, as most of them agree, that they saw something. Notice how it goes on. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. We're using glasses up on the screen as a picture because this is a visual reference. They say appeared, seen, saw him. Not, not, uh, not imagined him. They literally use the word, we saw him. In fact, in some cases they say touch. But in this case, they all agree that they saw something. Two names show up on this list. Notice this is James, and the second one is me. Referencing Paul. Let's start with Paul. Paul's an interesting guy. He wrote this letter, and his, first, his original birth name was Saul. Saul of Tarsus, born in another city. He, became, he was a Jewish man. Very, very, very against the, uh, the Christian faith. He had originally started debating the Christian faith within the synagogues and wound up becoming part of the people that, that killed the first Christians. Later, he would get so zealous, he would get a, a, a written legal affidavit to go capture Christians, bring them, put them in jail, and have them executed for their faith. And Saul was so angry, the church feared him. How does he go from that guy, which he said he was in several of his own personal writings, to the guy who is spreading the church all over the Roman Empire. What happened? I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. This is true, this is true, this is true. What, where, what's the flip? He actually tells us, he says, Jesus appeared also to me. He says, the thing that changed me was I saw Jesus and I was wrong. Which is really interesting why we have the U-turn sign up there because the second guy is named James. James is a really interesting character as well. James was actually uh, born in a house where he had an older brother. His mother's name was Mary. His father's name was Joseph. His older brother's name was Jesus. Later becomes the guy known as the Christ. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus in your house as a kid? You're like taking a bath. Jesus, stop walking on the water. You know, it's that kind of thing. Sister gets hurt. Mom comes running in. What happened? And James like, Jesus hit her. And he's like, Jesus, like, I would never hit her. And he's like, James, he doesn't lie. And it's like, ah, it must be really frustrating. But actually what we kind of see is that somehow it was a very mundane existence growing up with Jesus because by the time Jesus is saying he's the Christ and collecting people who are following him and teaching these things, James, the oldest brother, is reported in the book of Mark as believing his brother is crazy. Don't listen to him, he's a nut. In fact, it says in John very clearly, his brothers did not believe in him. They didn't agree with him. And so here James going, I grew up with him, he ain't the Christ. I grew up with him, he ain't the Christ. And suddenly he shows up later in the Bible, in the book of Acts, and is, shows up in Josephus, that, that, non, that secular author, as the head of the Jerusalem church and is actually so faithful to the faith, he is thrown off the temple when he's killed. How does he go to be known as James the Just, thrown off a temple from James, the brother of Jesus, who's telling you this guy ain't it? Except it says it here, that he appeared to James also, and Paul personally knew James from that visit. All of the, so scholars all agree, these guys saw something. Something switched the enemies. Something changed the disciples. And that becomes the last piece of evidence that, all, that most all scholars agree on. And that is that the disciples were radically changed. 
their lives were changed. You see, these guys were huddled together and then eventually they come to the place where they are going to die for their faith. Every historian that we have about the life of, of these disciples in their later life talk about what happened to them. All of them saved John, die, pretty brutal deaths. Anybody here enjoy like uh, 24? Anybody like the, the show 24? Throw your hand up real quick. Woohoo, you're on the crack cocaine my wife was on. Okay, so it's like she, she would watch. She's like, let's watch another one. I'm like, okay, we got to go to bed. Let's watch another one. Tomorrow's Easter. We got to watch another one. It's that kind of thing. Um, it, it, but it was just energizing, electric. We like spy thrillers. We like all this stuff. Inevitably, there's these torture scenes where she's like, I don't want to watch anymore. And, and all the torture scenes are showing for one reasons, right? They all say the same thing, no matter what spy novel or anything else says, even if it's like a real life drama. They're like, everybody breaks under torture. Eventually, they break. They all tell us what they need to tell us. That's why they do it. And so the whole point is, you torture somebody, they're going to talk. Peter was crucified upside down. That's more torturous than being crucified right side up. Bartholomew was crucified, pulled off, put back up, and then disemboweled while crucified. John was boiled in oil. Survived. Not once did these people recant. All of the disciples were tortured at one point or another, and none of them said, We made it up! say, well, gosh, Grant, that's no big deal. People die for their faith all the time. Look at 9-11. Yes, yes, yes. People die for what they believe is true all the time. People do not die for what they know is false. We have, that's unheard of. That a person knowing it's a lie is tortured and dies for what gain? There's no gain out of it. So scholars agree that these guys were willing to give their lives. Something changed them so radically they'd be willing to die for this message. And so there's all kinds of stories that have come out, and yet none of them fit all four of these evidences in the most probable way. There is, not a, there is no other highly probable other way to explain what has happened other than the resurrection. I'll give you a few of them because we've tried. Uh, we've been trying since the 1700s, since the Enlightenment, to try to say this is what really happened. The first theory that came out was called the swoon theory. The swoon theory was kind of interesting. It was this claim that while Jesus was on the cross, they gave him the sponge and he drinks from it. And he goes, oh, and he faints. And he's on the cross and up comes this Roman soldier who's inept and goes, I don't know if he's dead. Poke, poke. Nope, he's not. Or he is or whatever. And they pull him down and Jesus lies down in a tomb for a few days and he resuscitates and goes, I feel better. And he gets up on crucified feet and crucified hands with the whole back torn up from whippings and a, and a crown of thorns that is broken up his head. And he walks out and goes, I've resurrected. And they're like, oh, you think they're that dumb? I mean, that's pretty insulting to any human being's intelligence. If they, you had seen Jesus walk out of a tomb, messed up from a crucifixion, you'd go, get that guy to a doctor. Not, he's risen! That's not what happens. It ignores the medical evidence that he, is, he truly died. Yeah, it explains an empty tomb. But it doesn't explain Paul. It doesn't explain James. And so the swoon theory has been thrown out. It's not been used for years and years and years. It shows up every once in a while, but it's predominantly been pretty much put to bed. The big one that sits around is the conspiracy theory. Um, 
Conspiracy theories are pretty popular nowadays, but the, the claim was that these 12 disciples had gathered together. They really figured out how they were going to do this because they were going to become rich and famous, which, by the way, they never did. In fact, they taught against becoming rich and famous. But anyway, and they taught against lying, but they lied. Anyway, so this whole conspiracy thing they built up, and the point is that there's no real way to have a conspiracy with 12 people. Jay Warner Wallace, that guy I was talking about, the detective, he's broken up conspiracies multiple times because that's what you do when you're a detective in police work. And he says, in order to have a successful conspiracy, here are the things that you need. Number one, you need a small number, preferably two to three people at the max. We have 12. A good, quick communication. Cell phone, availability. You don't want to divide the people into separate rooms. And that's why they do that, to get them to, to lie, to break them open, whatever way they can. And so they need to have constant, quick communication. The problem is there's not constant, quick communication in the first century. These people are spread all over the place, over the Roman Empire. They need a short amount of time. These guys die in the 50s and the 60s AD, 30 years after the situation. And finally, you need really close relationships. Other than knowing Jesus, they really didn't know each other other than the three years they hung out with Jesus and a couple years after that. So they had some close relationships, but not of the same nature like a family relationship that he's talking about. So maybe you could give them one out of all of them, but it's not likely this was conspiracy. One man who was involved in a very big conspiracy, the Nixon-Watergate scandal named Chuck Colson, writes about conspiracies. He said, we were the five most powerful men in the world. We were hiding one single lie. That's what Watergate was down to. He said it was down to one single lie that that we had. And we couldn't hold it together. Though we had all the purse strings and all the power of the United States government at our fingertips, we couldn't hold it for two weeks. Until one guy squealed. And he wasn't even going to lose his life. He was only going to maybe face some embarrassment, maybe a little bit of jail time. But he squealed and it broke. Conspiracies are ridiculously difficult to keep together, let alone for that many years with that many people when you're being tortured. It ignores the fact that the tomb was empty. It ignores the fact that Paul and James would have to have been convinced of a conspiracy. How do you convince two of the enemies of the church who are saying it was a conspiracy? They stole the body, and suddenly now they're for him. It doesn't hold all the minimal evidence. And so they moved to this one now. It's gotten to the point where they were publishing papers on psychological phenomenons. Well, they had visions. They had, a, they had this situation happen to them where they, where they had a hallucination. In fact, it's gotten to the place where some of them have published papers on how Christianity originally was a mushroom-smoking cult. Because that's how they all had the same hallucination at the same time. The problem is psychology constantly reiterates the fact that hallucinations and visions occur to individuals, not to groups. And so there's this situation where the psychological phenomenon is impossible. Even if it happened to Paul only or to James only, it can't happen to the group of the 12. It's just not capable of all that pulling together. And so you end up with this reality that the, at least the top three that are used out there, they've gotten twin theory. There's all this kind of stuff. You can, you can take a look at more later. But all this stuff comes down to that there's not really a story out there. If you are interested in more... And you aren't a Christian, you're not, you're not part of Olive Branch, and really ask that you guys who aren't part of Olive Branch would let these kind of go out there. I don't even know how many we have left. But if you're really interested in seeing more, this book, Alive, kind of details a little bit more of the information, the other theories and why they fail, and a little bit more on all these, little, these evidences. But if you're interested, that's there. But the point is simply this, that as you look in, they don't, the only story, the only pro- hypothesis that fits all the evidence, the minimal four evidence is that Jesus died on the cross, the tomb was empty, 
because he rose from the dead and they really did see him. So, they were so convinced they really did see him that they would be willing to give their lives for the truth. And so faith doesn't have to be a flippant thing of a sentimentality. And the idea that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could have a new life and a relationship with God, the only thing that holds you back from believing that Jesus really rose then is that you don't believe in God. That God couldn't possibly do something like that. That he doesn't intervene in this reality. But what God did is he went and he said, yes, I do exist. Look, I've done something in history to show you. And I've given you evidences so you can trust me. Here's the beauty of the evidence he's given. We live in the 21st century in Southern California. You are dressed ridiculously compared to what they dressed like in the first century in the middle of Jerusalem. And I'm not, that's not an insult. They wore tunics. I don't know what they were thinking. So, but we're radically different people. We speak a different language. We sing different songs. We're as different to them as we are to the, little, the aborigines or the people living in the Amazon. And yet we're all listening to the same reality that a man came back from the dead because regardless of what culture or what expression you hold, one truth and one truth alone breaks through to every human being through every culture, and that is that we're all going to die. And so God chooses the one event that would overcome every cultural expression to show that he exists, that he's willing to forgive our sins, that he loves us, and that he wants a relationship with us, and that is he brought someone back from where no one's come back from, the dead, and gave us just the right amount of evidence so we can stand and trust. Pretty crazy. But he is risen. Would you bow your heads with me? I know that some of you in this room this morning may not be you know, totally convinced, but hopefully you've moved one step closer. One step closer. You're thinking, no, it's a little bit more certain than I was when I got here this morning. But some of you have been on the line. You're standing there right in the middle and you're saying to yourself, look, I didn't realize that, I always hoped that this was true, but this is enough. It's just enough to make you just certain enough that you can say, I can trust God that my sins are forgiven. That I don't have to work it off. I don't have to do this stuff. That he really rose from the dead. That he really has forgiven me of my sins. And if that's where you're at today and you've never received that forgiveness of sins, and you've come to see that Jesus has really, really done what, he's, what God said he did because he rose from the dead. There's nothing holding you back right now from receiving that. If you'd like to receive that this morning, I'd like to pray with you. Just let me know. Put your hand up. I want to pray with you right where you're at. And what you're saying is, yes, God, I want that forgiveness of sins. I want to walk with you. I see that Jesus rose from the dead. I see that this is not a story, but this is true. Amen. If you're there this morning with me and you're just and you're ready to receive that, just this is a prayer, it doesn't save you, but it gives you an opportunity to just speak to God. And trust his promise that he's given to you. That Say, God in heaven, I know that I've sinned. 
I see that Jesus is risen from the dead. And I trust that you've forgiven me of my sins and that Jesus has paid for them on the cross. I ask that you would come into my life, that I could have a relationship with you, that I could follow you the rest of my life. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.